this uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you're listening to the London, London is Blue podcast. podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, of the London is Blue podcast. But you know what? This is a fr- coming out on a Friday. It's me here, Dan, one of the hosts. And this is actually the second installment of the Tweeds Transfer Notebook. So it's notebook number two, Joe, and uh, it's just you and me, and we're going to talk about some players. Isn't that the the way, way this works? We let you do the first one by yourself. And uh, you know what? This one, uh, you've got a buddy. Yeah, always uh, always welcoming the guys from the US. It's uh, it's fascinating. The, the time differences, the amount of stuff that we actually get to collaborate on is actually quite impressive. So uh, yeah, second, uh, second notebook. This time, we're moving on from the... Uh, the host of, well, let's say a couple of midfielders that we were looking at, I'll probably look at a certain uh, West Ham player in detail at some point as well. But a couple of guys from from France and uh, this week's episode is primarily looking at the the two big names that we've been linked to in terms of strikers uh, over the course of the summer. So excited to to dig into them, what they can bring, what it means for the, for the club, etc. And maybe taking a look at a couple of, uh, let's call them unheralded names towards the end as well. Well, we're, we're talking about those as the backup options, maybe would be the right way to frame it. But yeah. the ones that we're hopefully not going to be seeing at Chelsea, because maybe we secure either the top one or second option that we have on the books. But we're going to get through a couple of those questions. We're going to set the scene. We're going to talk about one Erling Holland. We're going to talk about one Romelu Lukaku. And we're going to go through, again, some of those names of other options, but those are the breaking case of emergency type of transfers, you know, the deadline day, Zappa Costa striker equivalents that we really don't want to talk about. So, Joe, I'm just going to set the stage real quickly here with just the real question. You know, we, we bought two attacking players last season in Timo Verder and Kai Havertz. We have Tammy Abraham, who Chelsea's leading goal scorer across all competitions last season still. We have Christian Pulisic. We have Callum Hudson-Odoi. Why are we looking at these strikers, these centered forwards, just as a thought exercise? I feel like I know the answer. I feel like most of people <laughs> listening know the answer, but maybe let's just get your baseline for why. Yeah, sure. Um, I think there, there has been a problem at Chelsea, I would say, since the departure of, of Diego Costa in that we don't necessarily have a reliable centre forward when it comes to chance conversion. And for all of the kind of Sky Sports graphics and graphics that people put together around Chelsea creating a high volume of chances, I deliberately choose the word volume because it's just, you know, we create a large number of chances. The difference being that in those chances, when you actually dig into them, the sort of individual XG values or just watching the game and seeing the actual quality of chance and and making a determination by yourself. If we create 12, 13 chances in a game, maybe one or two of them are are of a good, sufficient quality. And generally, when you're looking into XG, if that's your thing, you're looking at a chance of uh, 0.3 and above. So a 30% chance of scoring and above is relatively measured, it's sort of a relative measure of what you would constitute to being quote unquote good. Um, You can also look at games as well and just actually make a determination that that we maybe don't always create the the best quality of of chances. So in a side that maybe creates lower quality of chances, that maybe creates less than two or three of these big chances per game, the difference really between us drawing games or losing games or or not being able to to beat teams who are, are very defensive and operate incredibly low blocks, who have very little intention of actually coming to, to play against us, kind of the determining factor in this case is probably going to be the quality of your, your goal scorers. And at Chelsea at the moment, you know, you'd be very hard pushed to find two or three players that are going to contribute 10, 15 goals a season from the attacking options that we have. Certainly from the midfield that we have, you'd be hard pushed to find in that double pivot, maybe, you know, 10 non-penalty goals out of uh, the, the three main people that play there. So I think this summer, the the pursuit of, of trying to find a sort of marquee centre forward has been kind of, I would say, as, as Dan sort of pointed out, fairly obvious in terms of one of the areas that we needed to to improve upon. Um, but I think in Thomas Tuchel's sort of game plan, his sort of game model and setup, having that elite centre forward, somebody who um, you know drastically outperforms their XG, somebody who is perceived to be, from a technical standpoint, a very good finisher, um, that is going to be the difference between draws that we've seen under Tuchel, under Lampard, under Sari, for example, those games that are tight, that have had those one or two opportunities that maybe a top-tier player would convert. 
I think that the the club are sort of looking at that as being one of the key, let's say one of the absolute key sort of things that they need to address this summer is to find that quality or calibre of centre forward who is going to convert what are quite often in terms of Chelsea games, quite often we have very low quality um, chances. We may create one or two above 0.3, but you're looking at a centre forward who has that ability to convert so some of those lesser quality chances into goals or into decent shots on goal that force saves and, and things of that nature. So I think, yeah, it's it's fairly obvious, I think, for the fan base that a centre forward is needed, but I think the quality of the centre forward and the reason that we are being linked to Erling Haaland, Romelu Lukaku, etc., those names are, are the guys we're being linked to is because we probably need somebody of that calibre to close this enormous points difference that we've seen domestically and then to help us to to sort of re, um, let's say, re-establish ourselves and to kick on again in Europe and look to try and reach another European final. You know, you bring up this interesting point before we jump into the next question around this idea of the value of a striker, not just from what they bring to the side or their ability to convert shots. I was actually looking at one of the articles on The Athletic about like the additional points per player sign like how many points will Jaden sancho heading to man united from a statistical model actually provide them in total in the total table you know you and i have talked about and i know that you're a fan of talking about the number the delta points that chelsea have had on the table from first place to where we finish in an individual season and we're talking um not just tens uh, in the 20, but like 30 plus range, even of points variance between yeah. where we finish and where the top of the table is. If you were just kind of maybe even just pull a number out, what do you think at a minimum one of these two players, Holland or Lukaku, adds by themselves in addition to if we just brought them into the side that we currently have today, we put them centrally we rebuild around that. What's the what would be the bare minimum you would hope for in terms of what that does for this squad? Yeah, that's a uh, that's a really good follow up question, Dan. Um, I think if if we establish a benchmark here, I remember in sort of the ballpark range that uh, that Diego Costa. I think when when Chelsea won titles, he was worth between fifteen and twenty points in terms of the goals that he scored. So we're not talking about the performance, you know, sort of leading the line, the different characteristics that they bring in. We're, we're trying to look at the the sort of direct impact of the goals that they scored. So it's, you know, turning a draw into a win, it's the winning goal, all these sorts of kind of things in turning a, a you know, a losing scenario into a draw, for example. So in, in titles that Chelsea have won, and even then Diego Costa was a 20-goal season striker, domestically 20 goals and non-penalty goals for the most part, um, those goals that, that he scored were worth between 15 and 20 points. So when you're looking at closing a, a sort of 19-point gap on City this season... It's been in the 20s, it's been in the 30s, as you alluded to in the, in the past couple of seasons. I think the minimum that Chelsea are looking for to um, to sort of address that balance, to address that gap, that delta, is, is at least 15 points. I think for somebody of the price tag that is going to be looked at when you're looking at a, a Lukaku or particularly a Haaland, you're looking for probably maybe a 20-point swing in terms of what they bring to the club. And in most cases, that can be um, you know, scoring the the winning goal that can be as said turning draws into wins, turning you know losing scorelines into draws. Um, that capacity to generate points from their goal scoring, I think, is going to be the key thing. And if Costa was between fifteen and twenty points by himself, um, then I would expect somebody like Holland or Lukaku to be of a, a similar quality. And again, you're saying then that you know you are massively and quite significantly um, closing that gap to Manchester City. Um, you know, and I think again over the course of the season, that, that sort of uh, points contribution is difficult to track kind of week to week. But over the course of the season, I think you'd be looking at seeing somebody like that with that sort of points points uh, contribution to the team. So I think between 15 and 20, anything above 20 would be insane. Uh, that sort of like Lionel Messi kind of levels. Um, but 15 to 20, certainly for the prices that we're seeing, um, obviously that would be a huge contribution. And again, in terms of us closing the gap, would be one of the main reasons why we are able to to compete with City for, for the title in the upcoming season. Well, I don't think most people would be disappointed by the idea of competing with City, taking it toe-to-toe, not just in a Champions League final and lifting a trophy, but also being able to once again take City on domestically as it relates yeah. to the Premier League. So maybe just one last little viewpoint here because I think that there are individuals who will look at the price tag 
and think as if it's their bank account and not necessarily a billionaire's <laughs> bank account and say, well, wait a minute, that's a lot of money to pay. There's a lot of money to pay to an agent. There's a lot of money to pay an annual salary because there's an amortized cost for these players. So what would you say to the could we maybe find a more affordable, a money ball type option, maybe someone that's the move before the move, we're going to get them before they potentially explode on the scene the way Holland did, where we could have got him or could have gone after him before he made the Dortmund move, but Dortmund was really where he exploded. Is there a way to sign someone who's a little less talented today, maybe a little less prolific today, but is right on that cusp of being the next top tier striker? Yeah, that's a it's an interesting thing to look at. Um, yeah, actually, the, the guy that I was sort of relatively excited about was the the person at Leicester City have have just signed Patson Dacker. Um, I think he was possibly going to be one of those players that is is on the borderline of being good enough to to play for a a sort of Champions League caliber side. Um, Leicester are superb at finding players who are on sort of that. Um, that kind of uh, well, I suppose they they flirt with that line uh, regularly in terms of being considered um, capable of playing regular Champions League football. They've they've made some fantastic signings over the past couple of seasons, and I think certainly their scouting department, their recruitment area, is one that I think is happy to take the risk in some cases and try to find some of these, as you say, sort of moneyball type signings. Where yes, even in some cases, somebody like Wesley Fofana was incredibly expensive for the amount of football that he had played, but I think he's already probably added another 20 million onto his, you know, onto his initial uh, sale price from, from, uh, from France. So yeah, I mean, he, he's certainly one to, to, to look at. I think Dakar will probably be the same. Um, you know, a couple of, of, of teams in Europe that have sort of decent strikers. It's um, I think it's a risk. And I think certainly when it comes to the, the premium that you pay for a, a proven or an almost guaranteed center forward, I think the the sort of the delta between you know the 100 million plus player and the 30 40 million pound player that 60 million pound sort of gap is going to be I think the 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 risk in in terms of trying to sign that player um you know I think there are there are a couple of people that, that we're being linked to maybe we'll speak to a little bit more later but the, the likes of 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 Danny Ings and you have uh, a, a guy whose name I probably can't pronounce properly but Sasa Kalidzic I think it's something like that there's another guy that we've been linked to recently. And yeah, you know, I think Ings, Ings reminds me a little bit of sort of that kind of Anelka signing uh, that when Chelsea made him sort of a little bit undervalued in the league and maybe he would play better in a better team now. He's had that sort of maturity. Um, if you are of the Chelsea youth persuasion, you will then pull out your various radar graphs and show why actually Tammy Abraham is probably still better than the majority of people in that sort of bracket of player that Chelsea want to sign. And I, I would definitely agree with him on that point. Um, Sasso again I think he's had one good season in, in Germany he was playing in the second division he's not really been a prolific goal scorer until the past season and I think again when you look at some players who you know maybe like a, a, a Jovic who moved to, to Real Madrid maybe too early you know he had a very good good season in Germany then moved and really you know hasn't looked the same player I think there are some reservations about trying to buy in players so I think for, for the centre forward position in particular I think that, that in Chelsea's current predicament, it's more about trying to find that guaranteed goal scorer. And with Lukaku, obviously, you have somebody who's Premier League proven. You have somebody who has been the spearhead of Inter Milan's title winning campaign. It's been almost kind of, uh, you know, revolutionary in terms of, of what he's done for Inter. Kind of redefined himself as a player as well. Um, and, and Holland obviously is the uh, the current sort of golden boy of, of world football when it comes to centre forwards in terms of his goal scoring, his his overall play, etc. So I think in terms of of looking at that sort of money option, yes, you could certainly try and find somebody who could hit that, you know, fifteen to twenty goal a season mark for the club. I think the argument that that has been made, and I think made successfully by Phil, was that given the game time that Tammy Abram has had, when he's had those opportunities, he is a fifteen to twenty goal a season striker, doesn't take penalties. So you're kind of sort of buying somebody to replace somebody that you already have who can really do that job, um, who already knows the league is, you know, English is is somebody who is a proven goal scorer at Premier League level. So that that's a little bit trickier to find. Um, I don't see really beyond, as I said, maybe Dakar, maybe there's a couple of other players um, who are in sort of a, a couple of levels below Holland and Lukaku, but still probably a little, maybe a level above, above somebody like Tammy. Um but then you've you've got guys like uh, Andre Silva and people of this who have who have scored goals and done well, but 
whether they would fit into the Premier League and there's lots of questions. So just think at the moment, there's a huge gap between this kind of elite level player and then there's like a very clear sort of set of of, of tiers um, that are missing before you get into sort of the next group. So it kind of explains the the money that's being sort of bandied about for these sorts of players and probably also why Chelsea haven't really been linked too heavily with, with one of these other players in Europe because again... I think that you're just bringing in somebody who is maybe, maybe they they kick on and become a really good player. I think Chelsea are looking a little bit more for that guaranteed um, cherry on on top of the ice cream sundae with with uh, this um, you know summer summer kind of of transfers for for Tuchel. Well, that's been the big change too. You know, we we have seen you know some of the squad filling type of purchases in prior seasons. We've made a little bit of a transition to being willing to pay more for some of the most talented players in all of Europe. And, you know, you think about the Kai Havertz deal being the club's record signing at this point. And now this would potentially go beyond that with the, hey, we're not only going to do record signings uh, once every other every season, we're going to do it in multiple seasons. So uh, we want to talk about uh, Holland. We want to talk about Lukaku. We want to talk about impact on the squad. But we're going to take our real quick break and then just get into all the nitty gritty. So I want to say thank you to the sponsors for financially supporting the show. And we'll be right back. All right, Joe, put it off long enough. But <laughs> Erling Holland, the man, the myth, the legend, the wunderkid playing at Borussia Dortmund, who also has some Interesting fashion choices, and uh, we're going to leave those to the side <laughs> for today, but we will get into the footballing stuff, which is what you and I are credentialed to talk about, uh, the fashion we will leave to another podcast at another time. Nick Fellaini, he seems to be the fashion expert on the show, so we'll leave it to Nick. Yeah, Nick, Nick is not here today, so we will not cover into those pieces <laughs> and uh, hashtag swag section. We will get into the what actually does Erling Holland bring to the table for Chelsea. I know we talked about number nine. We talked about what he can do, what his accomplishments are, and just maybe for reference. So Erling Holland uh, made a move from Salzburg in 2019-2020 uh, into Dortmund. So he spent half the season at Salzburg, spent the other half of the season at Dortmund, uh, played 18 matches for Dortmund that first season there, 13 starts, about 1,300 minutes, six goals, two assists, all competitions. That was an XG of .64. Um, per 90 total of uh, 8.9 so uh, he did have a outperform there and then in this most recent season 2020-2021 41 matches across all competitions for Dortmund 41 total goals 10 <laughs> assists terrible uh, that is a goal uh, every, a goal every 90 minutes just about uh, a total expected goals of 30.2 he again overachieved there uh, 0.87 uh, expected goals per 90 minutes a goal or an assist per 90 of uh, 1.08 and even if you want to go into the non-penalty it was 0.97 so uh, very prolific in what he does uh, if you called him a goal scorer you would be very apt in that regard but <laughs> Joe, what does he bring beyond just the goals and the assist and uh, a level of additional swag? <laughs> the, the third point being the the clearest reason to sign him, by the way. Um, yeah, this this is. I think this all starts with with the physicality. I think is that's a very very easy place to to look with Holland, and I think it's difficult to try and find parallels within football for players that are his size, um, have his sort of mobility and his kind of of pace. He's the first footballer that I think, I think he's six foot four, that I think you could you could sort of put him on a basketball court and he would look fairly sort of, you know, he would be smallish in terms of height, but in, in terms of athleticism, I think he would be fairly competitive. He's He is one of the, the, the first real freaks of nature that I think we've seen in football. He's like a Calvin Johnson, he's like a LeBron James. He has that sort of, that capability. Everyone's seen the meme running of him, you know, bursting past like every single person on the pitch to try and get on the end of a cross. Um, you know, this is a guy who has been built in a Norwegian factory, um, you know, out of parts of old robots and whatever. Um, and this this footballing kind of, you know, th kind of deity has sort of appeared. Um, you know, he, he has the size, he has the, the height, he has the physical uh, strength, he has the pace, the agility. Every single physical, I think, checklist that you would you would kind of create for a Premier League striker 
Um, you know, he's getting sort of a 10 out, of, a 10 out of 10 on pretty much everything. And the crucial thing, I think, with that physicality is that he really, really knows how to use his, his body. Um, you know, rarely is he getting knocked off the ball. Rarely is he not winning physical contests or really putting centre-backs under pressure. Um, you know, he knows that he can play on the shoulder because he's got the pace. He knows that he can drop deep and play with his back to goal because he's got the strength to to hold off centre-backs, to hold off holding midfielders who are trying to challenge for him. So I think fundamentally that his entire game is based in the fact that he is such a physically gifted player. Um, and it's more for, more so for me that, yes, you know, you've, you've got physical talents in, in football as well, but it's the connection between how how you use all of that physical talent with the the sort of intelligence that he has in the game. And I think that for me is is kind of the, the scary part about him and that sort of cyborg quality is that he has the sort of the Terminator body and then he has sort of the computer brain as well to go along with it. So, you know, when you watch him, when you watch him move, when you watch him find space, when you watch how he links play, how in tune he is with players around him, that's when the, the physical traits really become become frightening because as a centre-back, you know if you are getting pulled to the ball because he wants to hold it up and link with some midfielders, you know, you better have some recovery speed to try and catch him over those sort of first 5, 10, 15 yards because he loses most centre-backs in, in Germany, has a lot of athletic guys who play at, at the back. You know, I've seen him skin Dale up Meccano, who's one of the most athletic players. You know, Ibrahima Kenyatta, obviously another guy who's gone to, to Liverpool again. I've seen, you know, Holland absolutely just physically dominate him during a game you know, pin him whenever the ball is coming in, roll him when he wants to, lay the ball off. Um, you know, it, it's it's really eerily reminiscent of watching Didier Drogba play at times, that ability to to pin defenders and to pin players. I think that that really is the foundation of what he's able to do. But then kind of when you sort of move into sort of more of the, the technical side of his game, is his ability to find pockets of space. I think, again, you're looking for a Chelsea sort of uh, connection here, just reminiscent of Diego Costa. One of Costa's biggest attributes and one of his best traits was his ability to find uh, half a yard, a yard in the penalty area to actually get off a shot. And that's something that when you watch uh, Haaland play, you know, for such a big guy, for someone who is so clearly marked and such a clear, um, you know, reference for, for defenders, his ability to, to time his runs, to make perfect runs, to stop, to generate that ability to, to get off a shot, to find space. Is, is quite freakish at times. And I think, again, that's one of the things that really sets him apart from a lot of young forwards, is his ability to generate space in very congested areas. And, you know, when Chelsea are playing, I think one of the things that we notice when our tempo sort of drops, having that ability to be able to make those little runs, to create that sort of space, um, to generate shots for yourself, that is something that, that the club really needs in that centre forward area. Um, you know, we can look at sort of his his sort of mixture of, of runs, his ability to, to run near post, to, to time to the far post, to, to make double or almost sort of triple moves in terms of trying to beat a centre-back to the ball in sort of the, the middle area of the goal. That as well is incredibly, um, you know, an incredibly powerful sort of talent that he has. And then the most important thing, and I think the thing that, again, is, is why Chelsea are buying him, is that his, his finishing quality is, is just out of this world. You know, everyone's seen the PSG goal. Everyone's seen probably the the, the sort of the side volley goal that he scored last season. Um, the, it's all different kinds of finishes. There are tap-ins. There are powerful shots from outside the area. There are, um, you know, really sort of technically adept finishes across goalkeepers, um, you know, side foot finesse shots, whatever you want to say. Um, the only knock really is that he's incredibly left-footed and very left-foot dominant. But when your left foot can can produce the sort of shots and the, I suppose the the quality from from everywhere that he has, whether it's you know power, side foot, uh, you know touch on the ball, whatever you want to to use in terms of your your reference point of understanding. Every single time that he he finishes, I'd say ninety percent of the time he's chosen the right option when it comes to applying the right finish. And when you have looked at somebody who has you know been able to outperform their xG, who has such a clinical goal scoring record both domestically and particularly in the Champions League as well. That is the sort of the, the star kind of firepower that you would want from somebody who I think obviously has the physical traits to get, get that sort of space in Premier League penalty boxes and outside them, but then who has the, the immense quality and the immense ability to not only just um, find the space and find the angle for the shot, but then to choose the right sort of finish to, to, to score, to, to really work the goalkeeper and you know, whether it is that that hammer of a left foot that he has or, you know, being a little bit more um, sort of technical and applying a little bit more finesse to some of his shots. But 
that for me is, is kind of where he he stands out. You know, to the the timing of the run, the ability to burst, the ability to use his size to his advantage. That's all fantastic. But you know, it's the it's the quality of the finishing that I think really sets him apart. And when you're looking at a player that you want to build around to you know to win Premier League titles, to try and retain the Champions League. You know, somebody who's got incredibly clever sort of movement patterns and somebody who is very aggressive at attacking space and finding space, that for me is is the sort of the Erling Haaland trademark and probably why, you know, that £150 million fee, yes, seems expensive, but you are possibly, I think, buying the the most complete sort of centre forward in, in world football at the moment. You know, this is ultimately a guy that can play short, you can play long to him, you know, he can drop deep, he can link play, He's got a, a sort of creative side to him as well. He can create for others. Um, and yeah, it's it's just going to be one of those things that I think is is a necessary, I don't want to say a necessary evil, but a necessary component, I would say, to really taking this Chelsea side from a, a team that, uh, you know, maybe creates a few chances a game to one that is is able to create uh, chances for a forward that has that ability to score, you know, 20, 30 or even 40 goals across all competitions in a season. So yeah, hugely... You know, I think it's it's obvious to people that have seen him that he's a huge talent. Um, but I just think that his traits, particularly that combination of, of um, intelligent movement, the physique he has and that finishing quality, those are the traits that I think a lot of very good centre-forwards in the Premier League have had. I think he has them. Um, and when you're looking for that focal point and that person to build an attack around, you know, at Chelsea, I think for me, Haaland is, is going to be the guy that maybe over a five, six, seven-year period or whatever he, he spends at Chelsea that you're really going to be competitive every single season domestically and in Europe because he, he's, he's just that good. But it's not just, as I said, it's not just the physical traits. This is a guy who I think certainly when it comes to his movement, uh, movement off the ball, even sort of when how he counter-presses, you know, this is a guy that really understands where space is, how to make space, um, and importantly, how to attack space. And those three qualities are really what separate your upper kind of echelon centre forwards from maybe some of the guys that we were talking to or sorry talking about a little bit uh, a little bit earlier all right so you have waxed poetic joe to the nth degree about what erling holland could bring <laughs> to chelsea nobody i think listens to that and doesn't get excited i mean they're probably already excited they've seen the youtube clips they've seen him boss some big teams on national international broadcasts but you know just for those who again maybe there's a little reservation because of the price tag when we look at the structure of this deal there's the of course astronomical fee that's going to go to Dortmund there is the amount of money that's going to go to an agent for helping to necessitate the deal so Riola is going to get his hashtag payday and then there's also going to be the wage component too. And that potentially is going to have ramifications for the entirety of Chelsea and the entirety of the Premier League maybe actually with the way that this would rebalance the shape of power as it relates to to salary. So how, how did Chelsea intelligently structure this deal in a way that you know, makes people as happy as possible without <laughs> completely blowing up the fact that N'Golo Conte is Chelsea's highest earner. Yeah, this is uh, this is the complicated part of the deal. Um, is that also why it doesn't get done in a snap? Because I think that's the other thing that people are maybe losing sight of in that the fact that, again, yes, we know it is very, very soon to the start of the season. We know yeah. that it's there's not a lot of time left necessarily to get through this deal. But I think just like Kai Havertz, there's not necessarily a scenario where they are forced to sell, right? Like, yes, they will lose value, but there's also the benefit of they would need to go sign a player. They need to go restock appropriately. They need to be competitive within their own season. And so they can say no, and that is okay for them. Yes, they'll be losing out on, you know, I think uh, dream offers uh, in that the Chelsea is the only one who's going to make an offer this season. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I think that that's also maybe something that gets lost in the consideration, too, is we're talking about a deal Definitely. where, you know, both sides are going to negotiate the hardest for the maximum that they can offer, the maximum that they can push to bring the offer up to. So maybe kind of take that that context in as well. 
Yeah, so, I mean, when it comes to the, the speed of the deal, I think we've got, what, about, is it end of August? The yeah. transfer window? End of August, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, you know, you have probably about five weeks now, roughly, maybe just over five weeks in terms of concluding that deal. The reference point that I use is that is the Jaden Sancho deal that still hasn't officially been concluded, you know, has taken United 18 months, maybe some would say, you know, almost two years to get to a position that they are in now. So, um, you know, this, the, the magnitude of these deals often essentially necessitates that they take a lot longer to, to conclude because there's so many more moving pieces and there are a lot more complexities than, you know, paying £25 million for a player and giving like a million pounds to an agent, for example, and giving them 100k a week. Like that, that's a fairly simple deal for Chelsea to conclude. The, the fact that this is probably going to be either the most expensive or the second most expensive transfer in, in football history... Um, puts that into a, a you know a slightly different tier when it comes to sort of the negotiations and the complexity of the deal. The factors that will be at play here is that the the fee that Chelsea would likely negotiate with the agent is probably large enough to include it into the amortisation as well. So again, in terms of you know uh, agent uh, you know fees in terms of transfers, they are again amortised over the length of the contract. So you give a guy thirty mil over a five-year period, that, that adds six mil to your, your total annual cost, for example. So um, Chelsea's motivation will be to try and have that total annual cost to be as low as possible. So let's say that the total deal that they're looking for seems to be around 150 million. Um, I'm just throwing out numbers here. So if Chelsea try and get a you know, 100 million pound fee with 50 million pound in, in um, you know, bonuses and, and additions, for example, um, they'll book the 100 million and, and that is what they're trying to do. So that that main portion of the transfer fee, that is where Chelsea are trying to negotiate. The overall fee itself, um, with bonuses and with appearance fees and, and, and uh, you know, historical, you know, marks in the contracts, whatever it might be, you know, 50 goals, 100 appearances or whatever whatever it's going to be. The, the bulk of the main fee, that is what Chelsea, I would imagine at the moment, will be concentrating on in terms of negotiation. Um, you know, the difference in, in amortization between a hundred million pound fee and 150 million pound fee is pretty significant. Again, over a five-year contract, you're looking at 20 versus whatever it's going to be um, for, for the 150 million pounds, so like a, a 30 million pound, um, you know, uh, so if, yeah, so like a, a 10 million pound difference between the 20 mil you'd pay and the 30 mil you'd pay for, for 150 mil. That 10 million is is generally, you know, what you would consider in terms of wages for another player. So it's, it's pretty, pretty significant in terms of that negotiation. Um, I think people tend to focus too much on the, the value of the overall package. So the 150 million people will focus on that. It's, it's going to be what is the agreed upfront transfer fee. So again, you know, people, Kai Havertz was like, oh, he was at 100 million. And I think Chelsea ended up paying 69 upfront or the initial fee. That is what is amortised over the contract, not the uh, you know not the full capacity of, of the contract. So, focusing initially on that that upfront fee, um, I think Chelsea would be quite comfortable paying the hundred million pound in terms of the cash. But then it's going to be you know almost uh, what well, is a, a third of that contract or the third of the value of the transfer to be resolved by uh, um, you know appearance fees and and other sorts of, of contingencies that are in there as well. So. That, that portion of the contract is going to be the part that I think is, is difficult to negotiate or that value in particular. So Chelsea may be comfortable paying 120 million. They want to try and get negotiations on the 30 million, for example. Dortmund will report that they've got 150 mil. Chelsea report that they got in for 120. Um, I generally take the upfront fee to be the, the main bulk of it because, again, you have no idea how these transfers are going to, to pan out. So in terms of how Chelsea can afford it, that, that is how you'd work the transfer fee. You want to try and get the lowest upfront payment and then the sort of the residual element of the transfer fee. You want that to obviously be um, something that the, the other party agree, agrees with in terms of the possibility to hit some of those targets. It could be, again, I mean, we go back to some of Manchester United's incredible transfer business, like with Anthony uh, uh, Martial, for example, where they had a they had a Ballon d'Or clause in there, which seems a little bit ludicrous now, you know, given how well he's performed there. But you know, things of that nature, there may be a Ballon d'Or clause in in Holland's con contract, for example. Um, you know, there is a mooted uh, tactic from Riola to have like a a, a break point in there or a release fee. Um, there are loads of different things that can be worked on there. So, from a Chelsea standpoint, from a Chelsea fan standpoint, initial fee is fine. When it comes to wages, again, I think Chelsea will try to be cute here. Um, Holland will want that enormous package to be 
uh, as locked in as possible. And it's pretty similar to, you know, if you understand sort of NBA or NFL contracts here, you know, you always see the big fee reported, but really the guaranteed money is actually like maybe 50% of the contract or whatever that's going to be, unless you're Kirk Cousins and somehow you manage to get a fully guaranteed contract. Um, but it's a similar similar thing in practice. There will be a Chelsea maybe a comfortable paying him 300k a week, and maybe there's 200k in bonuses, for example, that he can you know whether it's by by goals, by appearances, mm-hmm. um, by by wins. You know, there again, it's it's the makeup of the amount. The amount I think again people get fixated on. You know, oh, you know they can't give him half a million pound a week. In most cases, Chelsea may even you know 300k, and then he's got the possibility of earning you know another 200k on top of that by playing, by scoring, by winning, etc. So. Again, it's going to be about the the percentage split between what is what is guaranteed and then what is possible via the the sort of bonus packages there. Um, and then the agent fee, I think, will just be a flat fee. Um, obviously, it's going to be absolutely enormous, but enormous agents uh, fees are associated with enormous transfer fees. And I think again, the main thing to to note here is that I think. Um, you know the, the way agent fees are treated in terms of counting practices they are amortized over the length of the contract but because of the size of the, the fee here this is possibly going to be one that is almost like you've taken on another player um, so it's going to be something to, to keep an eye on so in, in kind of the whole sort of package here the the main thing to focus on is going to be what are, what are the upfront costs what are the you could say the the guaranteed costs in terms of in terms of the transfer. That is going to be what the angle that Chelsea are focusing on. Dortmund and, and Rayola and Holland will be focusing on the total package. So, you know, the 150 million, the half a million pound a week. Um, and it's a difference between those two camps where you get the different kind of uh, you know news outlets and and their um, sort of associations to various camps. You'll see the the facts coming from different areas, but it's always trying to focus on from the Chelsea perspective that fixed cost, that upfront cost, that um, uh, locked-in cost for the transfer, for the wages, for the agent, trying to get that to be as small as humanly possible, that is going to be the where Chelsea can get this deal done. I have no doubts that they have the cash to make the deal work, but it's going to be in such a complex way that it's it's not going to be done within five days. It could take five weeks to, to conclude these sorts of negotiations. So a deal can be done, in my opinion. Um, whether it gets done, I have no idea, but the way that Chelsea would want to structure it would be you know, to, to reduce these upfront costs so that their total annual cost of the player is, uh, is is relatively fixed, it's relatively known, and then maybe there is a lot of contingencies based on um, bonuses and things of that nature. I think the one thing that maybe you didn't touch on, which I think is another element that really challenges this process, is Chelsea's also going to want to do two things before they get down to the end of this negotiation process and potentially signing someone like Erling Holland or Lukaku, who we'll talk about in a moment, is they're going to want to record as many outgoing player sales as possible to know Ooh, yes. what their available wage structure is going to be and what cash they have in the bank. I'm thinking about like the uh, WWE money in the bank, uh, you know, Chelsea are kind of climbing <laughs> to the top to pull it down. And uh, we're being pulled down by Bakayoko and Zappa Costa and all these other uh, that, Chelsea. That is the graphic for this show. Yeah, there we go. The, the, the Chelsea players who shall not be named on our island of misfit, uh, misfit transfers. Um, so there's that element of it because there's also a wage component to all those players too, where Chelsea's on the hook as well. And so the more Chelsea can get those players out and off to something new and potentially even taking a little bit of a cut price to get them out would be more advantageous than letting them sit and remain or waiting to a loan because you can't record necessarily the profit until we have actually gotten them out and we can record immediate profit on the books for the season if we get them out on a permanent deal. The other element that's probably going to complicate it or why I think you won't see a Holland news announcement that we have signed him until we have completed any extensions of current contracts for players. So you think about a Christensen, a Rudiger, because if everybody knows you have the money and you know that you're going to pull off this big transfer, and now you have someone that's destabilized the wage structure, you know, you might be willing to say, well, do I think uh, I should be worth a little bit more? Because clearly you have the money to pay uh, other individuals, and uh, whether or not uh, Christensen or Rudiger or Aspilicueta uh, is or isn't the best player in their position, um, I would imagine that they would want to push for their maximum value as well. And so uh, I think Chelsea are going to want to know exactly how much they're they have a plan to spend on an annual contract yeah. or multi-year contract for someone like Rudiger or Christensen, uh, or maybe on a one-year deal for someone like Dave. But 
that is something else that they're going to need to understand fully before they can maybe commit to the extra five, six, ten million per year that they're really trying to be smart about. And so I think those are the two things that are also getting lost in this Holland and Lukaku pursuit is there's a lot of money that is just expected to be paid and you don't necessarily know how much of that we are or aren't going to be paying or putting out for both the individuals that need to be re-signed and extended and the individuals who need to find a home that is not in SW6. Yeah, that's a, it's a really fascinating point, Dan. And I, I think just a, a small thing to round out that when when you're extending somebody like Rudiger, for example, um, you are reducing the, the amortization that you're paying on him. So I'm curious, I think probably maybe he's the only significant player when you're looking at maybe wages or a wage increase that, you know, extending him by, I don't know, another three years. So he has, um, or, or four years, whatever it's going to be. So he's got five years left on his deal. You know, the, the remaining uh, book value, you would then again, amortize over the length of that new contract so drastically reducing the the amount you have on the book so kind of it's a, it's a you know it's a, a an accounting trick but it does free up cash that Chelsea can then use to to a haul and so I, it would kind of make sense that there is some sort of standoff where if you're Rudiger's representation you're kind of looking to see what what kind of deal is being pitched to to Holland to kind of benchmark your own client but from a Chelsea standpoint you maybe want to try and extend um, Rudiger or you maybe want to extend Azpilicueta players that have some book value to again reduce that significantly to give you some uh, some sort of breathing room again when it comes to the sort of negotiation for, for Haaland so those kind of contract standoffs um, certainly I think are going to, to impact things again if you get two or three of those done correctly you can actually reduce the the sort of book value for the for the players by a couple of million pounds which again as you say is something that can, can go towards being able to cover the costs of and I hate that I'm saying this, but somebody like Mino Raiola for like a season per season basis. So you're covering your new acquisition in Raiola, um, the six mil or whatever it's going to be that he's going to get paid um, by actually, you know, reducing the the book value of a Rudiger or an Aspilicueta. But yeah, definitely it's a huge element of, of maybe why we're not seeing the the speed of the deal happen in a, in a three-day football manager period. Well, I think the real question is, can we also get Riola to uh, come in as the third choice keeper? Because uh, he could just help us close <laughs> two gaps in the squad with uh, one <laughs> one maneuver. Um, but let's functionally now talk and, and shift gears a little bit. We talked a lot about Holland, what he could bring, what the impact would be. Let's talk about Lukaku, who's the other option, who, as AJ has said, Inter is good. Everything's fine. But you know what? I mean, would you be open to the idea of Lukaku returning to Chelsea? And and what could he bring if he did make this return after being a Chelsea player previously, going on loan to Everton, uh, thinking that there was going to be this route back to Chelsea, um, and then ending up at United and then going to Inter, and we ended up with Morata, and probably everything would have worked out better for everybody if Lukaku had just come back here in the first place. But you know what? That's not where we're at. We're, we're at the point where Lukaku is one of the top <laughs> three, four, or five strikers in, in all of Europe and is on our list. Yeah, this is uh, this one has has I would say probably two yeah two kind of main elements to me. You have, I think in in Lukaku now this this version that we've seen sort of refined under Antonio Conte. We've seen, um, I think now a, a complete footballer has sort of emerged from from Conte. I think Lukaku is of the type of centre forward that he is, which is kind of an all round forward and all round goal scorer. I think he's he's probably one of the best players in the world in his position now, certainly top three players of that kind of quality. Um, and I think if you're buying him, you are buying, um, you know, you're buying the finished article. You're not having him come here to develop and, and develop into a player. You're saying, you know, for the next maybe three to five seasons, he's going to lead the line. He's going to be the guy. This is who we're building around. We're expecting him to be the 20-goal season striker we need to to compete domestically. And the second thing really for me, and I think maybe more from a sentimental standpoint, is the sort of unfinished business sort of narrative that I think Lukaku has at Chelsea. And I think how that possibly would drive him onto even a, another sort of level in terms of the quality that he's able to produce. I don't think anyone could really forget, or certainly I can't, the, the video of him coming here as a young boy to Stamford Bridge and the, the sort of the real genuine emotion that he showed about playing here. You know, he, he idolises Didier Drogba to come to Chelsea and be finally considered the sort of the, the long-standing heir to a player that he has admired for that period of time. That narrative to me is pretty powerful. 
And I, I certainly am a believer that, you know, if you have a player that really wants to be, and I do think deep down Lukaku would want to be a success at Chelsea. It's his club as much as what has happened, as much as how we've treated him. I still think he would want to come to Chelsea and and maybe sort of finish out the the peak of his career at the club that he loves the most. Um, and it's 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 a powerful thing having somebody who's got that sort of connection here. So you add in the fact that, as I said, I think he is a complete player now um, and that narrative that, that he would come back with. Those are sort of two powerful things. And then I, I think really when you get into, start getting into him as a player, the... The physical development he's had at Italy, you know, he's kind of leaned down. He's a lot more mobile. I think he's a lot more agile. He's still got that incredible physicality about him where he can, you know, he can hold off and he likes playing on centre-backs. He likes being the focal point, but can get in behind, can, you know, can turn players, can pin defenders, can roll them. All of those sort of traits that you would want from a, a classic Chelsea centre-forward, you know, he has them by, by the bucket load. But I think the big, big sort of improvement in his game has just been just his all-round intelligence, I think, under Antonio Conte. I've always thought Lukaku was, was a smart play. You don't score tons of goals everywhere you go um, by being somebody who is a one-trick pony. But I think under Conte, and I think this applies to a lot of players under Conte, that appreciation for his role, how he links with other players in particular, how he uses his qualities to help the team, um, that side of his game was, for me, has improved exponentially. The timing of his runs, where to run, where to attack the space, um, how to play with a strike partner. And again, I think we'll look into, you know, how he has often played, I think, into it, into having more of a, uh, maybe like a Timo Werner or maybe a, a, Mount, a Mason Mount or a Christian Pulisic or Kai Havertz playing behind him, how that sort of link play could possibly sort of change Chelsea. So more of a 5-3-2 that we've seen at Inter rather than sort of that 3-4-2-1 that we've seen. So him playing with a strike partner, I think actually has made him a lot more of a um, sort of technical and appreciative player of those around him. So his ability to hold the ball up and actually bring others into the game has probably benefited from having that player um, sort of very, very close to him. And then again, we're coming down to sort of the the real kind of um, sort of, you know, the, the key points here is that he, again, I think he's an excellent finisher. You know, he's fantastic in the air. We know that we like to cross the ball in. Um, you know, his ability to find space, to find, you know, to, to find passes from cutbacks, you know, without mentioning Hakimi's name, which I'm going to have to do, but, you know, that that cutback from, from the wingback spot would be something that would find Lukaku quite often. Um, but just the ability to all different kinds of finishes, you know, finesse, power, similar to, to Hall and really in that respect, you know, they have a great range as, as a striker. And I think, again, in terms of what he he brings to Chelsea, it's almost that, that guarantee of, of getting 20 goals a season um, with the sort of the, the sort of physical, the, the sort of technical and the, the intelligence that he would bring to the to the team. Um, as a player sort of now in his late 20s, he would be that kind of mature presence who probably could get more out of sort of the young players that would be surrounding him at Chelsea. Um, but it, it, it's for me, it's now his movement in the penalty area and around the penalty area that has been, I think, the biggest difference from what I've seen. Um, you know, makes f far better runs, his sense of timing, his ability to to create that small amount of space for himself to get the shot off. You know, I've, I've not, I wouldn't say that I've necessarily watched him in detail at, uh, you know, Manchester United when he was at Everton and when he's, you know, at West Brom, etc. But... Certainly, when I've seen him play for Inter Milan quite regularly, um, it's that ability to generate the space. And I think, again, when we're looking at, you know, players who maybe are not in that hall and all Lukaku kind of bracket, that quality of, of finding the, the half a yard to get your shot off, it's, it's the thing that made Diego Costa so dangerous. That quality is really what separates him from, from other players. Um, and I think, yeah, it will come down to the fact that I think he's already Premier League proven. He knows the league itself knows the language, knows the club. There are so many positives in terms of bringing him back that he wouldn't have to settle in and maybe find himself. But he would be a player that I think Thomas Tuchel could could build around. And again, when you're looking at a difference maker, particularly against teams that Chelsea should beat, we maybe struggle to um, because of this, the whole low block stuff. Having somebody who can play both as a physical presence and pin centre-backs and be the guy that can bully people, but also has that now, that sort of cute movement around the penalty area to find the space to get the shots off. Um, obviously, his goal scoring record has been phenomenal um, pretty much everywhere he's been. So for me, that, that side of it is, is not a question whether he'd score goals here. But as, a, as an all-round player, you know, again, perfect focal point for Chelsea and ticks for me um, every single checkbox that I would like from a Chelsea centre-forward. You know, when you're looking at the real top-tier centre-forwards we've had, Drogba, Costa and probably Nicholas and Elka to a slightly lesser degree, 
that that ability to play against multiple defenders, to to beat multiple centre backs, to be a physical presence, to drop into midfield, to link play, to to link with midfielders, um, to attack the ball from from crosses, from corners, you know, to be able to get in behind these qualities that all successful Chelsea strikers have had in title winning teams. I think Romelu Lukaku has every single one of them now. This is the best version of him that I've ever seen at Inter, both from a physical standpoint, a technical standpoint, goal scoring standpoint. And if you're going to, you know, if you have the inability to put together a package that tempts Dortmund to sell, Lukaku as a, you know, your 1B option, for example, for me is more than good enough for Chelsea to, to win a Premier League title. Yeah, it would look that way given, you know, if you're just maybe looking at some of the stats too, I mean, there's only been two seasons um, since, sorry, three seasons since 2012 where Lukaku has scored less than 20 goals in a season. You know, when he went on loan to West Brom, he scored 17 uh, in 12, 13. He, in that first kind of uh, time with Everton, he scored 15 goals in that first season, uh, 13-14. And then uh, there was the Manchester United team, which I don't maybe think is all Lukaku's fault, uh, but he scored 15 goals in that team, uh, 2018-2019. But beyond that, it's 30 goals last season for Inter, 34 goals the season prior, season prior. Uh, 27 goals his first season at United across all competitions, uh, 26, 25, 20 at Everton. Uh, I mean, in general, he gives you the volume that we'd be looking for. His yeah. uh, assists have gone up uh, dramatically uh, over the last three seasons from three to six to 11. So, you know, I think some of the things that you kind of talked about, his ability to drop back in, to link up play, to be able to combine off of others is something that could be very exciting potentially when we think about the impact of Kai Havertz and, and how he was able to really enjoy playing beneath uh, you know, a striker, kind of in that kind of shadow yeah. striker, second striker. Um, what could he do to unlock him? So, yeah, I think there's a lot of positives there. I think before we wrap, since we've kind of now gone through the notebook, we, we've given reasons why to go after someone like Lukaku or someone like Holland. Um, you know, is, is there maybe a preferred option in your mind? And... Oof. Is there a, if we had to sign somebody else, one name you would be, would it be acceptable to you um, other than uh, extending <laughs> Tammy Abraham? Because I think that is the, uh, the Phil's Chelsea youth way, which uh, doesn't seem as likely now as it would have been previously. <laughs> yeah, this uh, it's a question that I've posed and I, as I've been talking through it, I think it's, it's difficult I, for the for the superstar effects of Erling Haaland and the age and what he could eventually come into with coaching by Thomas Tuchel in a system that's built around him, I think he is the blockbuster signing. If we're taking the or if we're removing entirely the financial element from it, if we're looking at a sensible option where you're still buying an absolute world class centre forward with money in the bank to then go and maybe spend a bit more on a midfielder or whoever it may be. From a business standpoint, I think it's it, Lukaku is probably the most sensible option um, in terms of being able to get quality in this this window. Um, my my heart would love to see Erling Haaland here. I think he is the, he's the next kind of wave of superstar um, at football. And I think, again, having him at Chelsea... The options that that opens up for the club, not just from a footballing standpoint, but from a marketing standpoint and everything else on top of that, I think that would also be be enormous. Um, I don't want to sit on the fence. I, I'm going to say that I, I personally, I would come up with a package for for Holland. Um, if Chelsea were to get Lukaku, I would equally be over the moon. I just think that there is something that having Holland with maybe Kai Havertz behind him as sort of your kind of striker and your, as you say, your kind of shadow striker. That sounds like the kind of strike force that teams are scared of. Mm. That really does sound like a a pairing of young players um, who can probably communicate in German to annoy English centre backs, which is also fantastic. But as a pairing, um, you know that that does seem to be what I would I maybe look at as two players who have potential to be in Ballon d'Or conversations in the future. Um, so I, yeah, I think I would probably go with Holland, but that is is primarily I think focused on a lot of um, off field maybe benefits that would come with having maybe the best young centre forward in world football at the club. All right, and then who is the best of the rest if we had to go sign? <laughs> 
a backup option, our third choice option. We've maybe burned bridges with Tammy. We don't think we're going to get something done with him. We can't get the Lukaku deal over the line. We can't get the Holland deal over the line. It's coming down to Tuchel running into the boardroom, bashing hands on the table, wondering what's going to happen. <laughs> um, who Who is the one that you would say, you know what, for... 30 million, 40 million, if we could sign this player, that's the one I would take a, take a punt on. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I would say just to not incur the, the wrath of Phil that I do agree with. Uh, in some cases, Tammy Abraham is probably better than a lot of these players that we'll be linked with, but I think for the purpose of the fact, I do think he will move. Um, I will, I probably, probably take a, a chance on Danny Ings as much as that is, um, I think, uninspiring to some extent due to his sort of injury record. Um, I looked to the fact when Chelsea signed Nicholas Anelka years ago, there was a similar, um, I would say, kind of thought process around signing him. You know, he was at Bolton, he's this, he's that, he's he's lost it, he's, you know, he's not going to, he's not going to play well, etc. Um, you know, he went on to be one of the best strikers that I think Abramovich had signed, certainly when it came to, to goals, but also performances. So I think Ings is a Premier League proven player, somebody who maybe would benefit from playing with better players um, and probably is looking for that one last chance at a big club. I think he probably probably comes to mind. I would try to, I think in this instance, I would try to find somebody who was Premier League proven, uh, maybe try to find somebody who, is, who has got domestic experience because I do think, again, some of the players that we've been linked to externally um, from, from England, they're going to have an adjustment period and, and I don't know whether you could really afford to have that if you, you, know, if you haven't been able to secure your top choices. You would want someone maybe to be able to hit the ground running. So I think in that case, I would probably probably go with Ings on balance. Um, and also because I think he's probably somebody that we could obtain fairly easily if he wanted to as well. So it wouldn't be a huge, huge drama on deadline day, possibly. But I think I would probably go with, with, uh, with Danny Ings there. And then, Joe, what's your percentage of, let's say we frame it as, Chelsea signed one of their top striker options by the end of the window. What's your confidence rating on a scale of zero to hundred? Um, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go 60%. So I, I, I think, I do think we have a genuine chance. And the one thing I would say to people, certainly people who like transfer gossip and transfer rumors and obviously trying to keep up with things, the quieter that Chelsea are, the more likely they are working on something big. And th this has been, you know, the tale as old as time, as long as, um, you know, Abramovich has, has owned the club. So the fact that there isn't a ton of information being leaked and it pretty much feels to me like people are just remixing the same thing every other day. Oh, if Roman pays the money, oh, if Roman pays the money. Yeah, I mean, yes, we know. If Roman pays the money, then he'll come. I mean, you don't have to say that every other day. Um, but the fact there is such little news being leaked from the club to to, to journalists that, that get you know that get sort of significant information, I think that suggests that something is is working in the background. Um, so I do think the club are working. They're working hard on trying to get one of these players. Um, but given the sort of clandestine nature of how we operate, it's still it's still only sixty percent to me. I, I definitely think we've got a you know as good a chance as we've ever had to sign a player of this calibre. But uh, as the inner knows have have said, it will come down to whether Roman wants to pay the money or not. All right. Well, you heard Joe's confidence rating there, which is over 50%. So you know what? That's a better place to be. And it's uh, not under 50%. So those are both good signs to take away from this. But we went through Lukaku, went through Holland. We talked about financials. We talked about backup options. But you know what? Chelsea, at least in the modern era, are not trying to do backup options for signings. We wanted Timo Verno last season. We went out and got him. We wanted Kai Havertz. We went out. We did the long negotiation. We got him. We wanted Edouard Mendy. That was the first choice. There were other keepers available. We went out and got him. So if the transformation has actually taken hold and we're actually going to do what we say we're going to do and model an ethos, Holland and Lukaku should be the targets and we should go out and after them. So uh, let us and Joe know what you thought about uh, this episode, but we are going to uh, end and we're going to let you, uh, if you're listening to this on the Friday drops, enjoy your weekend and Chelsea are back with actual preseason matches starting next week. We've got a match versus Bournemouth. We've got 
the Mind Charity Series matches coming up, and we're going to be talking about all of those, so please stay tuned, uh, like the pod, subscribe to it, leave five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, tell a friend who's a Chelsea supporter because we want them to hear this and uh, enjoy what is going to be a very, very busy season because we've uh, charted it out, and Joe knows uh, there's probably going to be over 200 episodes on this feed this season, so we uh, we hope you enjoy every single one of them. Right, Joe? Uh, yeah, no, I'm... Uh... I'm super, super excited for this season. I think we've done some uh, pretty interesting planning with the guys, and I, I think probably this is, is going to be the best season of, of London is Blue that, that we've uh, we've seen. Well over 200 episodes, I would imagine, in terms of in terms of content. But uh, yeah, lots of interesting things in the pipeline, which I'm super, super excited about personally, as well as obviously for the for the guys and the, and the pod in general. Yeah, and for everybody who gets to listen. So that is going to wrap it up. Uh, again, we hope you're staying safe. We hope you're staying well. But until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying hot. Huh?